0: Today, we're going to continue in our series in Ezekiel, and uh, if you remember Ezekiel, when he was 30 years old, was supposed to become a priest, but found himself in exile in another country, not getting to do the work that he had intended to do, but God had a plan. He was going to be called to be a watchman. Not an easy job, but called to kind of tell and confront the people with their sins and with things that had been going uh, on with them. Well, Mike might be a little hot for me. It turned out just a little. Uh, so, God had just given him an opportunity to have a new mission. He was expecting to serve from 30 to 50. That's, that's the time frame that the priest would serve in the temple, but instead he had a different job. And At 50, they kind of got to take more of a backseat, leadership role kind of thing. <clears throat> so, it's been fun. I turned 50 yesterday, and uh, it's been good knowing you. So, Thank you. <coughs> but as some of us would re- remind me that, hey, 80 not too old. Caleb and some of those guys were like, I'm just as young as 80, so uh, know that you all uh, are challenging me to go forward. So let's keep going forward in the Lord together. So we learned it with Ezekiel, right, that uh, he had a plan. God had a purpose for him. But it wasn't an easy one. And it was to confront people and to have a, some very difficult conversations. Today, we're going to look in the text at the difficult conversations. The ones that we don't want to have. In fact, has anybody ever said this to you? Has anybody kind of approached you and said, We need to talk. You know what that means, right? Well, We need to, have a, we need to talk. We need to have a little conversation. We need to... <clears throat> We were with some of our friends yesterday that uh, raised their children, and their children are almost out of the house. And boy, they were just rehearsing some of those we need to talk moments with their kids. Some of you that have had parents, you've sometimes had to have those sit downs. We need to have a talk, we need to have that conversation. They're not always easy, even with our grown children, even with our parents sometimes. Uh, It's not easy to have the we need to talk moments. Ezekiel in chapter 6. We've come to a moment where God is wanting to talk to His people. God is wanting to have a conversation about some difficulties. So let's turn and let's take a look there. In verse 1 it says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against the mountains of Israel. Prophesy against them, against the mountains. You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the mountains and the hills and the ravines and the valleys, too. I'm about to bring sword against you and I will destroy your high places. Now, some of you that love nature, and you see, uh, I was talking with Henry even before the service about the glory of just the earth and how beautiful it is, and these pictures from outer space, and this, this beautiful place that God has given us. And here, why is God mad at the mountains? Did you notice that? Here, mountains of Israel, here's the word of the Lord against you. The sword is coming. and Why is God angry at the mountains? Well, it's not actually the mountains that God is upset with. He's not actually upset at the valleys and the rivers and the hills. Certainly God is not. They, they are inanimate. that They do nothing good or bad. Uh, and these are actually pictures of Israel. I mean, it's a pretty beautiful scene. God is not angry with the place. But He was angry as what the place had become in the hearts of the people. When you read the story of the Old Testament... In some ways, it's a story of God making certain promises of a home, a certain promises of a place, a certain promises where people would thrive in their walk with God and their knowledge of Him. These were people who were nomadic. Abraham was called out of his homeland to wander all of these hills and valleys, and he stretched across them for his lifetime, and the lifetime of his son, and the lifetime of his grandson. They wandered nomadically through these hills, and they were promised... They that God would give them every single place they set their foot on. These hills symbolize something. They symbolize God's promise. The promise of His presence. The promise of His blessing the promise of a place where they could be free and they could flourish and grow just like those valleys and those hills look like they're just flourishing. The hills and the mountains of Israel were supposed to be the hills and mountains where the people were enjoying God's presence. That they were going to be His and they were going to walk together and be together. By the time of Ezekiel, they had become something different. There's a word that, that he uses. It's called bama. It means high place. And it used to mean sort of an outcropping. You know, you know when you see one of those rock kind of formations on the edge of a hill and they kind of stick out, it kind of juts out. It's the place that everybody wants to go and take a selfie like, yo, look at me, I'm standing out here. That's where everybody like, I'm always like, oh, they're going to fall, they're going to fall, they're going to fall. But everybody wants to be out. That was actually the meaning of the term bama. It meant a, 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 a place where you would stand out on the edge. By the time of Ezekiel's day, for centuries, they had turned those places into places where they worshipped other gods. The high places, every one of them seemed to have an altar where they built several stones and they would sacrifice animals to other gods. Every one of them had a, what was called an Asherah pole. It, it was a pole to fertility, to try to ask these other gods, not the God who created the heavens and the earth, not the God who brings the rain, not the God who brings the harvest, but other gods, other ones, that, that were supposed to bring fertility in their bodies or into their livestock or to their fer- fields. And finally, they set up tents. Those tents were for prostitution. Tents were for prostitution. All of these things. So, so part of the worship of the Canaanite gods involved this cultic kind of um, sexuality. This cultic worship where, yeah, you're supposed to be kind of like trying to arouse the gods by your own sexual uh, endeavors. It was not a pretty sight. And it was certainly not anything God intended for the flourishing of his people. It was an enslavement to pleasure, it was an enslavement to the worship of false gods. This was happening on the high high places and in the valleys and everywhere throughout the land. When God says, Hear, O mountains of Israel, and proclaim to the ravines and the valleys, He's wanting to say, I want into every place, every nook, every cranny, where you have taken my blessing and turned it into something corrupt. Verse 4 says, Your altars Remember, because that's what's on the high places. The altars will be demolished and your incense altars will be smashed. I will slay your people in front of your idols, your poles and your tits. I will lay the dead bodies of the Israelites in front of their idols and scatter your bones around them. The people of God had abandoned their purpose. No longer were they enjoying the presence and relationship with God. No longer were they being a witness to the world. But they had adopted everything that the world said was right. Everything that the world said was the way you should live. Everything that the world said would give you the kind of life you want and the blessings you want. Instead of looking to the hand of the Creator who loved them so much and had made those promises like we heard in Hosea, that God would spare them the sword, that God would provide for them that God would be their God look at verse 6 wherever you live the towns will be laid waste those high places, the Bama will be destroyed so that your altars will be laid waste and devastated, your idols are going to be smashed and ruined, your incense altars broken down and what you have made will be wiped out your people will fall slain among you and you will know that I am the Lord I'll be honest. These are not my favorite passages of Scripture. These are not the ones I want to read. I like the ones where they hear about God's promises and His goodness. But I need these passages of Scripture. I need to be reminded about how the people of God, these ancient Israelites, turned their back on the one who loved them. Turned their back on the one who had rescued them. Turn their back to the one and who had given them life and hope and this beautiful land. Because I realize it's me too. That the God who has given me every blessing, I've often turned into something else. The God who has called me and given me forgiveness and a relationship with Him, I've often traded that relationship for something else. We need to have a talk. I need us to see, one, that God's purpose in judgment is significant for us. When God has to come around and discipline his people, it had a great purpose. And first of all, I want you to see that God's purpose, one, we need to, one, realize that how our sin actually affects God. Actually affects God. Listen to what it says in verse 9. Then the nations where they have been carried as captive. And Ezekiel was living in that captivity right then. And so many of the people were living in captivity, and the rest of them were about to go. He says, Those who escape will remember me. How I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes which have lusted after their idols. Yikes! You hear the language here. You hear the language here. Throughout Ezekiel, he uses the word, and the NIV that which we're using, loves the word "adulterous" and uses it as adultery or adulterous hearts. The ESV's a little harsher and probably a little more accurate. It just calls it the whoring hearts. I don't know. Adulterous sounds bad. <laughs> But when you call somebody a whore, I mean, I don't even think, can you use that word in church? Are we not recording this? Okay. I mean, can you even use that word? That's like, I mean, that's fighting word. You don't call somebody. I mean, that's, I mean, that's bad language. Read the book of Ezekiel. Read it in the ESV. It uses that word all the way through. But I think it exposes something that we don't realize. So often we think of God as sort of static. As sort of a thing of a giant spiritual, like, I don't know, vending machine that I'll give him some praise, I'll give him some prayers, and out comes my little blessing thing that I wanted. God is not a vending machine. God is not just our up there in the sky, like, oh, you know, he'll take care of us, he's made all these promises. Sometimes we treat him like a parent. You know what I mean about you know parents, you've got the kids that like, always seem to like, keep coming to you, but then they didn't seem to like tell you they loved you or respected you or did what you said. but then they're back asking for something else. Sorry, kids, if don't, don't do that. Well, none of the kids here do that, of course. None of the kids here do that, I'm, I'm sure. We treat God as if he's this slot not, vending machine. And yet, it says, I am grieved by their adulterous hearts. The New Testament says the same thing. The Apostle Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, uh, and along with every form of malice. Get rid of that. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We sang a song today. We sang a lot of songs about the Trinity, even. The the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You could see the theme together that Aaron wove together in the music that we sang and the songs that were chosen. And uh, Holy, 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 one of the really old classics, right? And everybody liked that one. I like that one, actually. I really do. One line, though, bothers me in the old text. And I know language constantly changes. But at the end it says... Which work and art and ever more shall be. Some of the more updated versions say who work and art, or who work and are and ever more will be. Why? Because we don't use which for people, right? Anymore. We use, we, we use who. I think so often we treat God like a impersonal pronoun, like the which, the, the one, the thing. Instead of remembering that God is a person. That Jesus is a person. That the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And we don't see it that way. And guys, we need to, brothers and sisters, we need to see the fact that when we sin, when we turn our backs on God, when we trade uh, what God has given us for something else, it is hurtful to the heart of God. Now, he's not up there like, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, no. But it does pain him. This week, I, I just needed to sit and think as I was preparing the sermon. How often do I just like. Oh, yeah, yeah, God, I'll spend time with you later. Oh, yeah, God, I, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but... Uh, yeah. How often do I just cross a line? How often do I ignore? How often do I treat as if it, God isn't hurt by my action? The one who actually has pursued me and loved me and, and lavished salvation upon me that we could be in a relationship. You wouldn't do that to your girlfriend. You wouldn't do that to your wife. You wouldn't do that to your husband. You wouldn't do that to your children. Most of the time, hopefully our children wouldn't do that to our parents. And yet often we don't see the hurt it causes. My, my One of my brothers, senior in high school, went away from home, ran away from home for a little bit. I was living in New York at the time. I, I was a lot older, but I was already married. And I was just like, oh man, what's he doing? And... Talking to my mom, you know, we were talking a lot. The pain in my mom's heart, the pain, what's going on, what's happening, the grief that he was causing her was just enormous. He didn't know, he was doing his own thing. But she was just agonizing. I knew he'd finally kind of begun to mature when not only did he come back home, but he wrote her a very long apology letter. Just acknowledging the hurt that he had brought in her life. You see, judgment has a purpose. One, it reminds us that we're actually hurting God. And we need to realize that this is not only hurting our lives, but it's hurting God. Number two, it's to bring us to a point like my brother of godly sorrow, of repentance. Look look what it says, uh, at the continuing in the verse we were reading in verse uh, 9. It says, they will loathe themselves for the evil that they have done and for their detestable practices. And they will know that I am the Lord. I didn't threaten in vain to bring calamity on them. Now, when I read this passage, and and many times in the past, I was like, self-loathing? We're not supposed to be self-loathing? And that has a lot of, lot of baggage in our contemporary society. We have an epidemic of young people that are loathing themselves. They hate themselves for whatever crazy reason. I was listening on the radio and they were doing and talking about a new study um, about people who are going through a, a... I can't even remember what they called it. It was sort of a visual dysphoria. that's happening because of Zoom. I think they called it Zoom dysphoria. It's because... And I, I know exactly what they're talking about. When I teach, when I preach, I don't know what I look like. Right? But now, for the last year and a half when I was teaching on Zoom... Most of the students didn't put their faces on the camera. So I'm just looking at my face, and I'm teaching to me. I'm I'm starting to get kind of like, I don't know, you know, what what do you want to call that? But there's got to be some kind of mental disorder where I'm like talking to myself the whole time and listening to myself while I'm talking to myself. It's a a little bit of a feedback loop there, I think, (laughs) emotionally. A little bit of craziness, right? People are starting to say, I look differently, I look odd, I see myself all the time, I see myself but I'm talking, I don't like the way I look, I don't like the way I sound. And people are starting to kinda of think through that. We are in an epidemic of self loathing because we compare ourselves to everyone who says all these wonderful things on Facebook and I didn't have that wonderful a day. Something must be wrong with my life. Well, okay, this is the best day they've had in ten years. Of course, maybe, you know. We have this strange self-loathing. And that is not what God intends for us. God has made you fearfully and wonderfully. He loves you. He loves you intensely. It, it, It has nothing to do with you just hating the creation that you are. Absolutely not. That is a lie of Satan. That is a destructive force. And at the same time, when we see our sin and we see what we've corrupted, it's okay to feel bad. It's okay to be sorrowful. It's okay to have some guilt in there. Sometimes we just don't want to. It's like, well, I shouldn't feel guilty, or our kids shouldn't feel guilty, or we should never feel bad for what we're doing. Guys, I'm sorry, but actually God wants you to be upset about the sin in your life. He's upset about the sin in life. It is destroying our lives. In the New Testament, it says the same thing. You're thinking, oh, that's just Old Testament judgment. No, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Second Corinthians 7. He had written a letter to confront them about the sin in their lives, and the people were grieved over what they had done. And he says in verse 8 of chapter 7, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a while. Yet I'm happy, not because you were sorry, or made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended you to be. And so you weren't harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance. And that repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. Years and years ago, I met a young lady. She was so full of joy, so excited to be on campus. She was brand new. She'd grown up in a Christian home, and she was excited to to be on this college campus. And this was years back in New York. And um, She came for a few weeks, and then all of a sudden, kind of disappeared. She got involved in another organization on campus, a, a sorority, and there were some different lifestyle choices, and she'd gotten addicted to some things, and some things were tearing up her life. I didn't see her for three years. But her senior year, she came back and she was at Bible study and she was like, Yeah, last summer, God really got a hold of my heart. I look back at my entire college career, my kind of time here, with regret. I did things that I'm ashamed of. This summer, I met a young man. He loves Jesus and he loves me. We're engaged. We're getting married after I graduate. I'm so excited and I'm so ashamed. The worldly sorrow, regret over over mistakes, yeah, that, that's there. But God intends us to be like this young lady who, yes, yeah, she's sorrowful where she's been, but she's realized the love of God. She's realized what real life is about. And, and, and godly sorrow doesn't leave regret because she's changing. She's leaving the past behind. She's choosing the life that God has. She's choosing this young man who loves her. And more importantly, she's choosing a God who has never, ever, one moment in all of creation, in all of history, before we were even formed, ever not loved us. I'm sad about myself, as I should be. We need to feel that weight. It helps us not go back. It reminds us that, what, what did the sin leave us with? Nothing but sorrow. Nothing but regret. And godly sorrow leads me to repentance to say, I don't want that in me anymore. It, because worldly sorrow, well, you're sorry, but you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. That's worldly sorrow. That doesn't get you anywhere. Look what godly sorrow produces. Look at verse 11 in 2 Corinthians 7. See what godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And at every point you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. I know when God has just really gotten a hold of me, I mean, there was one moment... And I mean, I wasn't doing anything but read Bible for like six weeks. I mean, God took everything off my plate, and it was a time of repentance and deep soul-searching. And it was like, who am I? What have I become? And what has enslaved my life? And it's like, who? we need that, because it produces that indignation. How can I be that kind of person? That alarm, oh my gosh, what if... We had a little fun with the candle this morning. What if the fire didn't light again. I'm not talking about that fire. I don't care about that one. I'm talking about in our hearts and our lives. What if that passion I lo- and that love for God that I had way back in, oh yeah, you know I'll repent and it'll come back. Oh, that's a dangerous place to be. What if it doesn't come back? What if I don't have that excitement? What if I don't... We need to have that kind of alarm. We need to see the seriousness of our sin. Well, number three, the third purpose is finally that we would realize that life is only found in God. God's judgment has a purpose of not only sort of helping us see how it hurts and grieves the Lord, because that helps motivate us when we're like, man, I am hurting God. And when we see that sorrow, I am hurting me and and how awful this is. But also, it, it helps us realize that our lives are only in the Lord you go on to chapter 7, they're just even throwing out the things that are, that, that, that are their wealth. They're throwing out the things that, that they cared about. He says that's what's going to happen when they finally realize their sin. But there's one phrase that pops up over and over in this passage. Um, you see it in chapter 6, verse 10, and chapter 6, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 4, it says 14, but it's really chapter 7, verse 4. And then they will know that I am the Lord, and then they will know that I am the Lord, and then they will know that I am the Lord. I think the first time I read that passage, I, I, I kind of thought, "Well, God, okay, fine." You know, it's almost like God saying, "Boy, then I'll show them. Boy, then they'll know that I'm the Lord. Yeah, that'll teach them." Yeah, I don't think that was God's heart at all. Actually, the more I've read this passage, the more I've heard Him say it over and over in my life. When are you going to realize, I'm the Lord? Then they'll know that I'm the Lord. Then they'll realize, I'm the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah, he starts off and says, They left like my streams and springs of living water. Like really fresh, like pure, like the good stuff water. And they've dug for themselves cisterns to catch the rainwater that are broken, that don't even really hold the water and, don't, and really just dirty rainwatery stuff kind of stuff. They've dug those and they don't even work right. You had springs of living water. I am the Lord. And you've traded it for the for the dirty cisterns that aren't even working right. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I am the Lord. In Hosea... This image that we read this morning is of God saying to His people, I love you, and it's a picture of His love for us. And oh my goodness, the, the, God tells the prophet to marry a prostitute. And yeah, he, she's rescued, she's redeemed, she's captured, but she keeps going back to her old lifestyle. She keeps going back to what has captured her. She keeps going back. When will we realize that our life is in the Lord? We've taken so many of the good blessings. We've taken the mountains and the hills that He's given us and we've turned them into something bad. He's given us wealth beyond belief and food and prosperity. And what do we do? We turn it as if it's all just about us for our own luxury. Sure, He's given us everything for our enjoyment, but we are to be stewards of this earth and of our wealth that the world might be blessed and they might come to know God. Because He's the Lord. Not our possessions. Or our careers have become our God, where all of a sudden it's like we invest everything as if somehow achievement will somehow satisfy me. If I just achieve more and more and more, somehow that will make me whole. Or our children, if I can just get our children to be who I want them to be, and everything we pour into our children, we need to give our children so much and raise them in a godly way. But when they become our idol, when they become our everything... We miss out. We turn what is good into something that can take us away from the springs of living water, from the life that really is God. Sexuality, all God has given it. It's a blessing, but we've turned it into something that it's not supposed to be, just like the Israelites did. I'm worried that these kinds of messages, when I read them in the Scripture, don't affect me like they used to. The godly sorrow doesn't spring up like it used to. Lord, keep me tender-hearted. Keep me broken. Keep me at a place where I want to say yes to you. Where I know that you are the Lord, that you are my life, that you are the one I long for, and that you are it, and all and everything else fade away. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Set your minds On things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. Did you hear that part? When Christ, who is your life, He's The one who gives you the mountains. He's the one who gives you the harvest. He's the one that makes your life full. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and it's like, oh yeah, I know you. Oh yeah, everything was in you already. You will be excited. Or when Christ, who is your life, appears, will you be still trying to hold on to all the stuff that, guess what, you're leaving behind anyway. So, my question is today for you: where are those high places in your life? You know, those things that you've corrupted, those things that have become the idols for you. Where are the high places in your life? And then, are you embracing true godly sorrow? Are you repenting of the things you need to repent? Are you okay with being sad a little bit? Or are you just trying to be numb? And finally, this is our question always. Is Christ your life today? Is Christ your life today and every day? For some of you, Christ might not be your life because you haven't made that decision to follow Him yet. I I, I mean, it's a simple one. You just say, yes, Lord. You are my life. Forgiveness is in you. I'm going to follow you no matter what the cost. I'm in. I don't want to hurt you anymore. You have loved me and I want to love you back. I'm in. If that's you today, would you write where you are? Say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I'm yours. For most of us, we just need to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. Where have we been stubborn? What are we holding on to? What high place needs to be smashed? Because while that sounds like judgment, it's actually cleaning out. It's actually getting to the right place. That we can enjoy the beauty of what the mountains are supposed to be. If you need to repent, or if you're choosing Jesus today, or if you just have some other prayer need, I'm going to be here at the front. You come, don't wait. Aaron's going to lead us. uh, As we sing a few more songs, we're going to respond. But would you take this moment just in quiet silence and reflection with me right now, and you do business with the Lord as we wait. Jim perhaps could play um, uh, as we sort of wait uh, for him, even in this moment. Let's pray together. Father, we wait in silence. Speak to our hearts. Clean us. Thank you for the forgiveness and the grace that is in you. Thank you in your Son, Jesus, that you've already given us. Lord Jesus, make us holy and make us wholly yours. We pray this in his name. Amen.